During times of crisis, humans tend to turn to religion and spirituality for comfort. We finally come to the end of our tether and of what we're able to comfort ourselves with, and we reach for something bigger. But the year is 2020, and the role organized religion is playing in our lives is profoundly different. With fewer and fewer of us attending religious services, even without a pandemic, and more and more of us identifying as, quote, not affiliated with a religious group, I didn't make this up. This is from the Pew study from just last year. (laughs) What happens when we need answers and we need comfort and we need to reach into the spiritual side of things? What happens when we feel let down or betrayed by our religions of origin and yet we feel drawn back to them in times like this? And what does spiritual leadership even look like during a time when we couldn't go to church even if we wanted to? Well, my beloved friend Jen Reedy introduced me to my guest today, Pastor Rob McClellan. As you might recall, it was Jen who connected me with the improv master Corey Rosen. So, you know, Jen has exceptional taste and Rob did not disappoint. He's the kind of spiritual leader who is dead honest and clear-eyed about things and every subject is fair game, in other words. He's my kind of spiritual leader. But just to give you a bit more background on him, the Reverend Dr. Rob McClellan is the senior pastor, head of staff at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Tiburon, California. He holds a bachelor's degree in communications, master's degrees in philanthropic studies, rhetoric, and divinity, and a doctorate in ministry. Rob hails from the Midwest and has lived in both the South and Northeast before coming to Northern California. He is married to the Reverend Sherry Hauser, with whom he has a son. Friends, I want to invite you into one of the most interesting and satisfying conversations I've had about religion in a very long time. May I present the good Reverend Dr. Rob McClellan. I went on your website for your church and I saw the beautiful body prayer you had posted. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so lovely and it made me realize how far we've come in organized religion where, you know, a Presbyterian pastor is basically doing a form of Qigong or Tai Chi as a moving meditation. So that's where I wanted to start is tell me about your role, your faith community, and how you see yourself as a spiritual leader, especially right now. Hmm. Well, my role, it's interesting you mentioned this body prayer that's on our website. Maybe that's a good place to start. That originated as a practice that a woman developed who was doing intensive trauma work with refugees and people who'd been abused or tortured. And it was a way to get folks back into their bodies. And one of the things they've learned with trauma is people become totally disconnected from the physical world. And so often in trauma work, you see people doing things like tapping or stomping or doing embodied work. Right Now, what does that have to do with being a Presbyterian pastor? I mean, it's an ironic question because we are known, for those who still know us, which are fewer and fewer by the day, <laughs> as a very as a very intellectual tradition, yeah. as from the neck up. So yes. we fit in perfectly with contemporary American culture, though that's changing, thankfully. Yes. Wait, but can I, can I, can we go back to the trauma work for a second? There is so much in what you just said. I feel like if we went no further and just unpacked everything you just said, it would take us to next week. But something that I read the other day, or I heard it on, I don't remember where I heard this, but it was a therapist talking about working with people who have experienced severe trauma, PTSD, and how they are at times incapable of appreciating 
little things like the feeling of sun on the skin, looking at the beauty of a tree moving in the wind. And it struck me, it really stopped me in my tracks because sometimes I get frustrated with, there's, there are people in my life who shall remain nameless who have a really hard time appreciating the little things and it makes me frustrated with them. Like, why can't you get out of your own way and see the beauty around you? And when I saw that, I thought, well, maybe they're traumatized. Like maybe there is deep trauma. And so, which leads me to the next question, which is, don't we all have some sort of version of that? And how does the body link up with the, above the neck to resolve it? Yeah. In my field has been one of the worst perpetrators of it. And we could go into that forever and ever too, but you know, religion, when it became an institution needed to get some control and it needed to get some power and it needed to teach people what was sacred and what wasn't and control all of that. And in doing so we've traumatized a lot of folks. It's funny. The first thing that was read to us in homiletics, which is preaching in seminary was nothing officially theological. It was not biblical. It was a Mary Oliver poem about paying attention. Oh, I love that. It's all about, you know, noticing the grasshopper and the grass and all of that, because at the heart of the real spiritual journey is paying attention. But the shadow side of religion has said to people, don't pay attention. Don't trust yourself Mm. in your own experience because you need us to tell you what's sacred. And as long as we get to tell you what's sacred, we have job security and we have power in society. But there's always been this mystical stream that's been underground or weaving around the edges that has said, no, 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 no. You can go outside and see the grasshopper in the field and in that you will find God. That is absolutely so true and so powerful. And it's almost as though fate has brought us to this moment where even I'm from the Catholic tradition and, you know, I teach liturgy of the word, you know, every couple Sundays at my church and it has forced even the Catholics to go to a level of spirituality that has nothing to do with being inside the church that has, you can't even get communion at this point, which is the whole mechanism of gathering in Catholicism is the Eucharist. And what it's doing is some of us, I think have been spiritually lazy. We show up to mass on Sunday and we want other people to feel for us or tell us. And now we're left to our own devices, you know, but look, look at what the Eucharist is rightly understood. This is bread. This is also God's body. This is wine. God is in wine. So this is where the Catholics actually get it better than we Protestants, that they recognize the sacred and the ordinary. Now, ah, that I mean, is too so often. Beautiful. Yeah, no, they I mean, I mean, the desert fathers and the desert mothers and I mean, these were Catholics and they got it. There's another wonderful stream in the Celtic tradition mm. and, and the Celts talk, and this has had a real resurgence in contemporary spirituality. Mm-hmm. And the Celts talked about the two books and there's the big book and the little book, both of which reveal God. And you can guess what one of them is. One of them is the Bible. Uh-huh. The Bible is the little book. The big book is creation. And each bear the image of God and point to God each. Now we've totally subverted that second one because we can't control that one. But what the mystics have always said is you can go outside and experience it too. And what 
a church which is dying at a rapid pace. So in the United States, the only thing that's keeping the church afloat is one thing, hmm. immigration. Without immigration, we are Western Europe. Wow. So, so yeah, so the church, the, the church is dying. And yeah. so we have two choices, either to grab on tighter and try to convince people we're in charge or just to let go. Yeah. And say, I said this in some form in a sermon a couple of weeks ago, none of you need to be here. You can walk out right now. We're right on the water on the bay and go along the ocean and you can experience God. You actually don't need us. And somebody got up and started to walk out as a joke. And I wish they had kept going because it's only when we fully let go and say, you actually don't need to be here. When we release ourselves of all of it, that's that right. will actually have any hope of surviving. I mean, it's the whole, you have to die in That's order right. to live. That's we right. have to learn to die. We've been That's trying to hold exactly. on to life for too long, and it's just not working. That's exactly right. And I think the future of it, too, is, in fact, I was, I'm was i doing my own little self-thought experiment, which you will appreciate, Rob. I'm just noticing, in fact, I'm going to do a whole podcast episode on this, but I'm noticing we're not just quarantined physically, we are in lockdown with ourselves and our minds. And before there was so much stimulation in my life, there were kids to drop off, there were jobs to go do, audiences to talk to. So much allowed me to not pay attention to my thought patterns. And as I'm sitting here in the mornings, I have so much more time for devotion, for morning practice, for meditation. And I'm stuck with myself listening to the same lame conversations I have in my head every day. And so I got, I'm so like, I'm so bored with it that I'm trying to write down the patterns of thought. And I, it's so obvious. There's the pattern of judgment. There's the pattern of you suck for X, Y, or Z reasons. I mean, it's so boring, Rob. It's the same stuff. But what I was doing as I was writing those down is I was thinking about how ill-equipped traditional religion is even though they were such an intellectual pursuit, like Catholicism at its best to me is like the Jesuit tradition. It's such an That's intellectual where I was going. pursuit, right? But even that intellectual pursuit has been a pursuit of logic and articulating spiritual truths in a beautiful way, but they have not gotten that core wisdom of like Buddhism that just teaches you how to train this because well, this is a mess. Yes, except the founder of the Jesuits yeah. So Ignatius of Loyola, of Loyola, the practice that he offered that lasts to this day, probably more popularly than any other, mm. is the examine or the examine. Are you familiar with this? I am. Well, okay. I'm familiar so with the concept, but I've never done it. Yeah. Well, so it's just your list making. You just sit at the end of the day and you and you you have two columns and one column and you can you come up with the headers. Where did I feel peaceful? Where did I feel stressed? Where did I feel energized? Where did I feel weary? Where did I feel in the flow? Where did I feel blocked? You, n- you name it however you want. However you and want. then what you do is you, you turn off the analytical mind and you just let the patterns emerge. And it's sort of like, you know, when, when a wave just washes away some sand and then there's a shape left. I mean, that's what happens when you look back over time. So it's there. That's the thing that's so tricky. I mean, that's what keeps me and it doesn't keep millions of others, but it keeps a few of us from walking away from it is yeah. in the midst of all this stale useless stuff. There are these kernels that are still on one level worth it. That's it. 
That's it. I think you're right about the anxiety piece, though. I was on a conference call for a board I'm on the other day, and one of the other board members is a therapist, and he said the second pandemic will be depression out of this isolation. But I think the third or maybe the subset of the second will be anxiety. So in our church, which is your classic wealthy, white, you know, upper class congregation, yeah, we've been doing all this electronic stuff and we're calling everybody, just calling them to see how they're doing. And without exception, we have people who are incredibly concerned about how other people are doing and convinced they can't be doing okay and offering to help. And we can't find a single person who needs anything. <laughs> that's <And so>, crazy. <laughs> now, I know that's a huge statement in, of privilege yeah. and a recognition yeah. of people who have resources. So I, I totally get that. But what it says to me is in our community, what we have is not a crisis of need, but we have a crisis of anxiety. Yeah. Now, on, on the one hand, that comes from a good place. People want to care for their neighbor. But married to that is this serious anxiety that is some expression of, I don't want to sit with my feelings. I can't acknowledge that this is reminding me of what was always so that I'm actually not in control and I'm used to being in control. And so I must act and do something, even if it doesn't do any good, because it will keep me busy That's right, and it will keep me from sitting with the existential fears that I have that I've been able to cover over with excellence. That is so perfectly stated. In fact, an awareness I gained this morning was that I, you know, I have the blessing of being busy because I'm the helping profession like you are, but it's self-generating busyness. It's like I'm making content as my offering, but I have noticed that in the category, so peace, flow, goodness, my work lives here. But Saturdays and Sundays, I feel agitated, off kilter. And I was like, why is that? And I realized it's because I think my worthiness comes from my output. Oh. And that oh. is a problem, right? Like oh. how many of us sit with that without oh. knowing it? You should see the clergy discussions I'm in right now, where thank God at least people are finally naming it. Yeah. All this latent competitiveness, who can do the best? Oh, best online worship, who's doing more offerings, how many people are, and at least some people are recognizing it. It's unbelievable. And I definitely notice it in myself. So I hope this comes from a good place that I have a genuine desire to give my people a little something to hang on to. So every morning I get up and I read a Psalm online on Mm -hmm. Facebook live. I don't even like some of them. Um, I shouldn't probably say that, but I mean, good Lord, some of them are boring and I don't, you know, the Bible is a strange thing. I have a funny relationship with it. And then at night I give an evening prayer, which is almost never written by me. I usually just read some ancient something or other, just to give them something to hang on to. That's the good piece that's coming out of it. But then I start to go back to see how many people have, have liked it or, or reposted it. And I start to count the numbers and then, and and then it even gets stranger. So I'll be upstairs fighting non-violently, well, non-physically violently (laughs) with my seven-year-old about brushing his teeth. And I mean, drop down, drag out battle about teeth brushing to the point where I basically have to scream at him and say, dad's got to go down and lead prayer now. And then I go down (laughs) and, and I get on Facebook live and I invite people to breathe more deeply. And I'm wearing a nice, but I'm in my pajama pants and I give off this and in what am I I mean the integrity just comes apart now I mean the point is not to beat oneself up 
but just to recognize how ridiculous all of it is. It's so true. I was recording an intro to an episode that's going to air on Monday. And it was, you know, this very like heartfelt, you know, that my voice is like nice and warm and quiet. And I'm, you know, teeing up this concept. And one of my kids shouts at me from outside. And I literally go from this like very you know, <laughs> deep place to what? You know, <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Oh, oh no! My wife has said she is jealous of my relationship with Zoom because I think I'm, I, I show up much better to that than I do with her. I even posted on a multi-faith clergy discussion group this great prayer I found from a book of Desert Fathers, and it talked about not looking to external realities for affirmation and all this stuff, and and wow. how how I need to be careful and maybe we all need to be careful about doing all this stuff and looking for affirmation. And then I found myself checking back on that very post to see how many people liked it. I feel you. God, why are we like this? In fact, this is so validating. I can't even stand it. Like (laughs) there is a shadow side to literally everything we do, right? Every good deed we do. The shadow is that we're like, did you see my good deed? I just did. Yeah. Yeah. That is so incredibly validating. I love that. But you know, the shadows, I think the shadows are also inversely there to show us where the light is. I mean, I had somebody yesterday, we did do a small thing at the church where we allowed, because we're we're essential if we're feeding people. And so we were collecting meals and a woman came up and I think I did the brushing your teeth joke with her uh, because I know she's got kids and she got almost teary and then just about kind of how hard it would be had been and it was good to know that other people were struggling and I thought oh my god have I sent the message in my semi-composed post that I'm somehow have it all together so I wrote her later and just said we're all just kind of barely holding it together here I mean you recognize that right and she wrote and said this has just revealed so much about me I don't like and what I will say What I will say next is, okay, it all feels apocalyptic, right? That's the word people use. Well, apocalypse in Greek just means revealing. And so this is an apocalypse because we have a great revealing going on in society. And Warren Buffett said, it's only when the tide goes out that you see who's been swimming naked, right? That's the quote. That's right. That's great. So I... So what I want to say to her and we'll say to her and to other people is, okay, so we have two choices then. We can look at what's been revealed and layer it with shame and guilt and self-loathing, all of which is a strange form of actually stroking the ego too. And none of it's helpful and it's certainly hurtful. Or if we can find the grace to look at it and just be curious and say, huh, there's that piece of me that's drinking too much or that is anxious or is impatient or is judgmental, huh, I want to sit down with that little piece of me and have a talk or have a listen and see if we can get somewhere different. I mean, those are very different paths. I was going to say, but going back to something you just said, because it's so profound, you said the great revealing is revealing these pieces of ourselves that we're not that happy about. And we can sit with the shame and the guilt and self-loathing. And you said that's also a form of ego. Totally agree. Say more about that in particular. Yeah, because I, and I find this in myself a lot. I can be a moper and that is a form of self-importance, actually. I mean, the self-flagellation is not really a true denial of self. It's actually a propping up the self. 
is some sort of messianic complex. Like or, I'm so special. Exactly. God, that is so true. And somebody who is more comfortable with their feelings can and have said to me in the past, what's the problem here? I mean, yeah. just have your suffering, but let's get on. I, we often do the opposite of what we're trying to do. Yeah. So in your role as pastor right now, yeah. do you think your role is providing comfort, providing, like, what does leadership, spiritual leadership yeah. look for you right now? Is it that you're trying to do the inner work and show people on the outside so we can all do it? Like, what does it really look like for you right now? I'm just so curious. Yeah, it's very, it's very difficult. I do think it's comfort largely. Mm-hmm. The problem is being sort of a white straight guy. Often I've always served wealthy people. Yeah. Is that I feel convicted from within and from my peers that I'm letting people off the hook around things like privilege and justice and all of that. And that's the thing you would think pastoring or spiritual work would feel very spiritual, but every instant is compromise. Every instant feels like 80% integrity if you're lucky. Wow. Say more about that. Well, because, because every time I get up and tell people in some form or another that they're okay, which is true, and I believe that, and they're deeply okay in a fundamental sense, I'm also secretly sending the message that they don't need to think twice about their gated mansion and the implication it has for their neighbor who has a school that is under-resourced by a measure of two or threefold. And There's no real way around it, and I don't think there's a proper formula. I actually think the discomfort is a piece of the proper formula. Right. But there's everything I say, and this is a sadness of our system, is tempered with the weight of how donors will receive it. Yeah. Because I could have complete integrity and then lose my funding source. That's fine if I'm a monk, but I have a seven-year-old who didn't ask for this. Yeah, that's right. So, God, and that's that's the human condition. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think that's what makes it so appealing to be operating in a religion that allows you to be married and have children, is that we all relate to that. You know, there are I feel the same way. I, I you know, I'm in a position where I work with companies that are high integrity companies, as far as I know. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure if I dug deep enough, I could find instances of injustice in every client I've ever worked with. And I think the fact that you're modeling that same fraught dynamic is powerful, is really powerful. But it, God, it's such a tricky scene. I get it. Oh, it is. But there, there is a gift in it because it's also forced me to be in relationship with people I wouldn't otherwise. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the thing that keeps me up at night and has kept me up at night since 1989 when I was in fifth grade and I first learned about the greenhouse effect is climate and the environment and all of that. I was a worrier as a child, but I probably still am. And I've got oil execs in the congregation, right? And some of them have the, in fact, it's funny, some some of the people who used to work for a big oil company lead the green stuff in the church. Wow. have been the most brilliant and kind and good people, and not just interpersonally, but in, yeah. in a larger sense. So that kind of accountability, while I wish I didn't have it, has also forced me into a kind of openness I wouldn't otherwise choose. Oh, that's fascinating. That's fascinating, but the, but that is, that's redemption, that's mercy, that's grace, right? It's yeah, absolutely. Making peace that we really, making anyone into an enemy is dangerous territory. And in fact, yeah, it's... Yeah. Um, 
it reminds me of this thing that I, I talk to clients about anytime we engage in a thought pattern of us versus them or separateness or tribalism, nothing good from my perspective as a communication coach comes from it because there's no, we, we can't make progress. And sometimes that means sitting in a conversation with someone who's racist, homophobic, sexist, da, 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 finding ways to engage and find common ground so that we can progress can be made. There's a million different examples that I use that are more business examples, but my, you know, I beat myself up for this one, this missed opportunity when my father was still alive. He came and saw me speak and he had never seen me on stage before, had no idea what my jam was. And at the end of the event, after I'd greeted everybody that wanted to talk to me afterwards, which is always a good sign, you know, and I'm feeling very vulnerable, but also very proud because I felt like I crushed it. And I go to scoop up my dad in his wheelchair and I take him out to my car and I get him in the car. And I said, so, you know, what'd you think? And he said, well, I mean, it was good. And I was like, you, you know, I'm sensing hesitation in your voice, dad. And he said, well, you know, you're just, you've got an uphill battle. Men can't learn from women and you're in a teaching capacity. So you're never really going to get that full success you're looking for because men can't learn from women. And of course, because with our parents and the people we love, we lose all of our skills, you know, <laughs> and I looked at him and I was like, what? That is insane. Most of my clients are men and I'm defending, defending, defending. And then I'm like, what the hell am I defending? And I wish I could go back in time and say to him instead, dad, this must be really weird for you. You grew up in the madman era where women were glorified wax figures that brought you your coffee and laid down. You know what I mean? Like, this must be really weird for you. Tell me about that. Like I could have, yeah. it could have been such a moment of connection and like eating my own dog food. And I just blew it, you know? Oh, it's just too hard. It's just so hard though. It's so I mean, hard. it's just, Oh, no. But you're, you're dead on with the us-them piece. I mean, the mystics really get the, and the modern mystics too, folks like Richard Rohr and others talk, oh, talk about non-duality. Yeah, non-duality. Yeah. And so they say exactly what you say, that you can only get so far with the us-them. What's the Rumi poem? I'm sure I'll misquote it. Oh, but something about there's a field beyond right and wrong, you know, this to that, you know, and, and I will meet you there. And, right. and I do think that's the path to actual discovery and shifting of paradigms. At the same time though, that too can become this real tool of privilege and not wanting to do the work because because then we just stop naming injustice. And that's not the point. Non-duality is not about ignoring abuse and exploitation. It's just about recognizing the oneness of our mutual personhood and how we're all bound up in it. But that too can become a perverted tool. And that's the piece of me that always feels a little, a little off. It's so true. And in fact, I think maybe that is the grace of this moment in, you know, human time is that we're learning how to be in that field beyond right and wrong, but still name injustice and still work right. toward equality, but to do it in a way that's, that respects dignity all the way around. In fact, the hardest thing for me, Rob, right now is watching um, the president update us on this pandemic. There aren't even words for how I feel when I watch him because he is not my favorite, as my children like to say. But at the same time, it's an incredible spiritual exercise for me to sit with it and be like, okay, you keep saying there's no us and them. How might you see him through the lens of compassion? I mean, this is a man who's 
got limited access to emotional intelligence and communication skills. And he is literally doing the best with his very limited skills. And when I look at him from that perspective, I think that poor guy, I'm going to pray for him because he's way out of his depth. He is nothing if not a reflection of who we are. I think he's shown us some things about ourselves that many of us don't like. And he can become a distraction because we can layer it all on him. And so if we can just crucify him or get him out of office, one of which I think is probably a good idea, then (laughs) then it will all be solved. Oh, yes. We both know it will not be solved. That is so. It, It may be swept back under the rug. But unless it's dealt with, the same therapist I was talking to was saying, we were talking about, will this change us fundamentally? Yes. And he actually said, the evidence is likely that it will not. That it's the same as in any interpersonal situation. You can modify your behavior for a short amount of time, but unless you do the deep work underneath, fundamentally you will not change. And the question for our culture, which tends to run about two inches deep, is will we really do the work to change? And I think the jury remains to be seen. I mean, to go back to your question of what's my role, I do think it's comfort right now, largely. I think it's time and place. And I think time is, the time now is for comfort. But the time for challenge has to be on its tails. I mean, this Sunday, for example, I will tell all those stories that have made us all feel good about the Italian priest who gave up his ventilator so that the, the young man could have it. Man, a man in Atlanta whose church is, does a sewing ministry for refugees and they're sewing masks. I mean, you can name them as well as I can. Yeah. But beneath every one of those interpersonal heartwarming stories is a systemic failure. Yes. Yeah. Why the hell are our nurses wearing trash bags? That's heartwarming. It's also inexcusable in the richest country on the planet. And the danger is if we just lather ourselves in the comforting stories forever, we need them for a little bit, Yeah. then we will never get to the questions. I mean, there, remember those books that were so popular for a while, Chicken Soup for the Soul? Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, as, as the title suggests, they're great when you feel bad. The problem is we, st- we have started and continued in the religious culture of our country or our, our part of the world to have chicken soup six times a day. Oh, and, so and we're just, it just makes us sick. That it doesn't is- make us well. That is so right on. And if you could, in the spirit of brainstorming and just off the top of your head, we use this language of doing the work. I use that phrase all the time because it's the only hope any of us have for growing on any level. But if you had to make a prescription for this time of self-isolation, self-cocooning, shelter in place, whatever the hell you want to call it, if you could write a prescription for the work, the deep work, the not, you know, fluffy ch- chicken soup for the yeah. soul work. What would you have on that list? Oh boy. It'd probably be a short list. Maybe because I'm a novice. I go to a nun once a month as a spiritual director. Oh She's a formidable God. woman. She basically asked me the same thing every, I want to keep paying her, but it's, <laughs> um, it's what's going on in here, pointing to the heart, mm-hmm. i.e. get out of your head, Rob, again. And what are you hearing? And how are you listening to those little voices? And I, like many, have been trained to power through those voices and bowl them over or push them to a side because that's what it means to be a man in particular, especially a man from the Midwest where your your primary job is to apologize for your existence. (laughs) And instead, 
to sit with those voices, even in a, in a time when you don't have time and say, oh, I hear you. Maybe that's grief or anger or sadness. I don't have time right now, but I promise tomorrow I'm going to give you 10 minutes. I'm going to sit and listen to you. Because if you don't, they will come out sideways. And for much of my life and for many people's lives, they have been coming out sideways. That's it. So I, I think the recipe starts and maybe ends there. That the real work, at least first for someone who's just stepped like one toe on the shore, yeah, is just to actually pay attention to what's in there and start to listen to what they have to say. And they'll lead you home. I mean, it is so true. And I think so many of us start that work. And the minute the heart speaks and says, I'm really, really sad. The first thing we do is say, how can you be sad? You live right, in Toronto. Exactly. You live in, I, you know, this palatial, why are you sad in quarantine? You have a backyard. There are people that don't even have a right. freaking porch. Right. And so we dismiss it. I've never, I've never encountered more anxious people and more stressed out people around money and more guilty people than the really wealthy people I serve yeah. because they not only have suffering because that's part of the human condition, they have massive amounts of guilt about their suffering Yeah, and, and all these feelings of how they're supposed to feel. Mm -hmm. And that's just another layer. I got a, I emailed a nurse this morning to just say, how are you doing? I'm thinking about you. And she wrote back, and it was about four or five lines, and every line revealed two sufferings and one apology for the suffering and judgment about how she should not be complaining about it. I could tell you more, but this email would be so negative. Wow. I feel this way, but I don't even know, I don't, but I don't want to burden you with that. And I thought, oh my God, what have we done? Yeah. What have we done that we've taught people that's what it means to be mature is to blast through your suffering and apologize to everyone for it. I follow a teacher named John Philip Newell. It may have been from him or someone else mm -hmm. where he talks about our tears can be our gift. Mm -hmm. But if you, if you watch our contemporary culture, what is the first thing that everybody says when they cry in from front of someone else? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That for is what? so true. The tears are an invitation for you to connect on the basic level of pain because that's the only thing we share maybe is pain. It's so true. I try. I started a little exercise in the church where I said, now, anytime you cry in front of somebody, the first two words you have to say are, you're welcome. <gasps> I love that. I don't know if anybody does it, but I'm imagine if you thought I'm going to start. Because how, when you've been the person on the other side of the tears, right? You're out, you're having wine with a friend yeah. and she or he tells you something, they start to cry. Do you ever feel annoyed at them? Never. You feel totally honored. Yeah. That they're, you're so intimate that they would share that. You feel connected. You feel useful. Yeah. You feel all these wonderful things. And, they're, yeah. and we've taught them their reaction is to apologize to us for giving us this gift. I think that's so true. In fact, for me, I don't know if your kids are into Harry Potter, but there's that there, in one of the books, there's that professor who has a, an hourglass with sand in it. And during regular small talk, the sand just passes at a normal rate. But the minute the conversation gets interesting, the sand slows down. Oh, and to great. me, when somebody is moved to tears or I cry, to me, the sand is slowing down. To me, that's the only kind of conversation I want to, not that I want people to cry all the time, but like yeah. 
I hate small talk. Like, and now it's even worse. Like I don't even want to do zoom happy hours anymore because it's just going to be the same small talk, but virtual. I'm like, count me out. You know, I think that's right. It's in tears. It's funny you mentioned children. Our guy is not yet uh, uh, Harry Potter. I was I was going to try to make an evangelical joke about Satanism and Harry Potter, but I don't oh, have one. Oh, please do! But, I'm so but I, <laughs> I'm actually I can't wait till he he gets to it. He's actually he's really sensitive around books and movies and stuff. So we can, yeah, my I son has only been able to get through one. So in fact, I just wrote a children's story, kind of a chapter book kind of thing that's that I tried to do an entire story that's still interesting, but doesn't have anxiety induced conflict to see if I could do it. But it's funny you mentioned, so I can't wait for Harry Potter and all. Oh my God. That's but, um, wait for your story. Uh, well, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I don't know if it's any good, but it's fun. It was fun. That's so fun. But talking about children though, is such an interesting connection to tears. My wife does all the reading about childhood development mm-hmm. and I get the five minute summaries for her, which is perfect deal if you ask me she's not happy with it but (laughs) one of the things she read recently was that children have have a physiological need to cry because among other things their sweat glands are not developed as ours are and so we rid ourselves of all kinds of toxins through sweating and they can't and one of the ways they expunge them is through tears And so they actually really need to cry a lot. And what are the two words we often say to our children as soon as they start? Stop crying. Why are you crying? Yeah. As if any of us can answer why we're crying. No, that's exactly right. Oh my God. So we think of that. We start the shaming around expression before children can even read and write. Yes. Oh my God. And if it's not shame, it's like alarm. Like, Oh God. Oh, you're crying. Oh my God. We got to fix this. God, that is so powerful. It's so true. And I feel adults need to cry too. In fact, I was, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I'm sure you've noticed this, but my husband and I always talk about how, you know, these spin classes, soul cycle, my own lift studio, where there comes a moment in the in the class where they turn off all the lights and they play a really emotionally evocative song as kind of the the sort of active rest and half the room is crying in the dark. And we walk out and we're all like this. We're like, Oh my God, that felt so good. Taryn Toomey's got this thing called the class out of New York. That's now streaming live where it's literally you're crying and screaming through a workout and it is awesome. It feels so good. And I think it's interesting that these forms of exercise are now having huge traction because grownups need to emote and we never do. And connect the body to it. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, have you seen that the performance piece? I wish I knew the artist and she just set up a chair. I don't know if it was in the Met somewhere in New York and she just sat there and she just saw people. Yes. Yes. You know, some all kinds of stuff happened, but the number of people who just wept at it, and she wasn't even looking lovingly at them. No, she it was just neutral. looked blankly at but them. But it was neutral, but the presence that she was radiating was right. what they were responding to. I watched that same thing, and did you see where her, you know, a former lover walked in and sat down? And they- I don't, looked, I don't recall. Oh my God, I'm gonna have to send you that part of the clip. It's Oh, please, gone. yeah. It's beyond because they they have no words, obviously, but the way they communicate via facial expression 
She recognizes her ex-lover. He kind of shrugs his shoulders and looks back. I mean, it is so Oh my gosh. It's incredible. If nothing else, just the promise that people had when they sat down across from her is, I know she will not speak to me. So she will not judge me. She will not interrupt me. She will not hit me. She will do nothing to me. Think how unsafe our world is when that just basic level of safety evokes the highest of human emotions. Incredible. That's incredible. And in fact, I, I feel like we should end on that because it doesn't get any better than that, Rob. I just, that's beautiful. I have to say this was my favorite hour of the week so far. This well, was- I'm glad to be talking with you Monday at, at 8 a.m. It's wonderful. <laughs> record is Thursday morning. (laughs) Just don't even. Thank you so much. That was so powerful. And I wish you and anybody who's in a spiritual leadership capacity right now, I wish you energy and endurance and self-compassion. And I just thank you for everything you're doing. Well, thank you. Bless you. And thank you for everything you're doing.